Hey everyone, this is Mike Dunn. I'm Janine Dunn. I'm Julie Cook. I'm Matt Downing. And you're listening to Rethinking EDU. Thanks so much for joining us. As usual, we're super happy to be here and super excited to talk with um, our uh, guest this evening. And I just want to put it out there to all of our listeners. We're recording this. It is uh, Tuesday, February 22nd. So two Tuesday, if you're into the whole two, 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 two Tuesday thing. And it is negative eight degrees in my hometown here of Estes Park. And I know all of the, um, all of you listeners are out there are super jealous right now that my beard actually froze today. And uh, it was quite the sight. Students were like, what? What's going on? But uh, um, I hope you all can experience the joy of a frozen beard at some point in your life. And without further ado, I want to bring on our guest, Ted Dintersmith. Ted, we have been wanting to have you as a guest for some time now, and we are so happy that you are here. So welcome to Rethinking EDU. Thanks for thanks for joining us. Yeah, no, it's great to be here. And I'm glad it's not minus 22 where you are. Then we'd really have the two theme going. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. Although I wonder if the wind chill at some point today was minus 22, honestly. It was pretty cold. Um, so Ted, I want to give a little overview and introduction of you, and then we're going to get in some, into some questions. And, um, I just want to preface this with, uh, to all of our listeners out there that Ted's got a lot of stuff going on. So we're <laughs> only going to be able to really hone in on just a snapshot. And, um, you know, Ted, your work in education is really, uh, it seems like just this platform in which you're really trying to promote, um, you know, school change. And, uh, and I hope that we can capture some of that in our in our conversation. So Ted, you're the founder of what school could be.org. And that's an organization that's catalyzing um, progress at the school district and state level across the country. We'll get into a little bit about what school could be in a, in a little bit. But in addition to all of this, you've been um, you've been an appointee of President Obama. You have won an NEA Friend of Education Award. You know, um, there's lots of other things that we could say about you. But one thing I want to point out is that your PhD and your and your education background is in engineering. And um, I guess some would also argue entrepreneurship, right? And so I wonder, before we get into this bigger conversation about what school could be about progressive education, I wonder how did you land on education as the, the issue that you thought was at the core of what you wanted to pursue next? Yeah, well, let me get to that. But first, I'll start with, you know, I spent way too many years in school. And as you say, I did get a PhD in engineering, spent much of my career in technology, you know, in engineering related businesses. What was the most important was my English undergraduate background. You know, and I'm a huge fan of being able to write well. And if you read my books, you might say he's a fan of it, but can't. Ah. <laughs> That's possible. But, <laughs> I don't know about I will all that. Say, when I look at, my, look at all those years in school, what was the most important for me was all the English courses with the writing I did. Far more than engineering, even though I was in technology-oriented uh, businesses. So uh, how did I get into this? It was really pretty simple. I, I did spend 30-plus years at the forefront of innovative you know, technology-driven startups, I feel like I had a really good vantage point for understanding how fast technology is advancing 
and what the repercussions are for society, but also for the future of our kids. And when my kids got to middle school, which is about when most places say it's time to get serious about the learning, I started to look at what they were being asked to do and how they were being evaluated. And, and I reached the conclusion that not only was it not good, it was downright detrimental. And when you start to think that we're doing things in schools on purpose that jeopardize kids' prospects going forward instead of amplify those prospects, it seemed like a really important thing to go, you know, to take on as a, a life mission. And that's what I did. And I want to, right from the beginning, make sure I make this point, is I am a huge fan of teachers. And, and initially, you know, when you see things aren't going well or don't make sense, you it takes a while to figure out what the reason is. And you know, I think that it's clear and you see it in my books and films, you know, that it's really the policies and the accountability metrics we shove down the throats of our schools, hold our teachers accountable to when they don't have a voice in them nor believe them they're terribly important, measure our kids by. So it's, it's really a context that I think is taking us down the wrong path with education. And that's what I've spent the last you know, decade plus of my life on is trying to shift the narrative and make the point that there really needs to be not minor tinkering on the edges changes, but we need to do a wholesale rethought of what we value in school and how we engage kids in their learning. So take us back to, well, first of all, that was beautiful. And you couldn't find four other people in a room with you that, that like couldn't agree with you more. You know, we are on that path and of that mindset. And we have spent the last 40, whatever, however many episodes of this podcast we've recorded, um, trying to raise that point, that whole, whole scale, um, you know, evolution and change of education is a necessity, right? And I have ideas around um, what, why you could have come to that conclusion when your kids were in middle school. But is there anything really specific that comes to your mind when you think of this thing was the thing that I know that was the catalyst, right, for me thinking things needed to change? Well, well you know, for 50 years, and there's no sign of abatement, you know, the advance of machine intelligence has been growing exponentially. And, and people have a hard time fathoming what exponential growth looks like, because in any narrow bandwidth of time, it looks relatively flat, but over a 10, 20 year period, it's changing dramatically. And so when you think about something like artificial intelligence, where it is today versus where it will be in 10 to 20 years, it'll be easily a thousand times as capable as it is today. Robotics in 10 years will be 10 times as capable as it is today. I mean, these are not small issues. When you look at a world where the, the phrase I use, if it's routine, it will be done by a machine period, full stop. By the time our kids are out of school, you know, take kindergartners, right? They'll be out of the school into their career in 15 years. Oh my gosh, so many things will be done by software, artificial intelligence driven software, robotics, you know, boom. I mean, it's just a totally different universe. And then back to that middle school takeaway, which initially started with a school, then a few schools, and then more schools, and then more schools. What, what I found was this, was that, the way you did well in school, and this is true in almost every school across the country. And, I, and I, when I visit schools, I ask them this question. 
if I put a student in here tomorrow morning who excelled at memorizing material, replicating low-level procedures, and followed instructions, and the faster and the fewer errors they can make in doing that, the better they are, how will that student do in your school? And the answer is invariably honor roll. That will be an amazing student. The point I then make is that's exactly what machine intelligence does perfectly instantly. And the key point here is when you raise the intensity, when you push kids harder and harder to excel at what machines do better, there's a price you pay for that. And the price you pay is they lose all the things they need so vitally when they're adults. They stop being curious. You know, the only question you hear in high schools is, will this be on the test? They lose their creativity. They feel no sense of agency because they're being pushed through these mindless hoops that when they ask the teacher, am I ever really going to use this? Generally, when you get to middle and high school, the answer is almost certainly not. And so when you look at this just in case learning, you know, you're going to study this just in case you remember it. And if you do, just in case you might actually need it, you know, students sort of say, what's the point? This is where you see this perverse aspect of the achievement gap, right? Which is kids don't find it interesting. They don't see a point to it. They, they think it's mindless. Who rises to the challenge? What's well, the kids with the tenacious parents? The parents that hire a charismatic tutor, the parents that buy them an iPad and bribe them to, you know, to get better grades with a new iPhone or in high school, if you can get 1500 or higher in your SATs, we'll get you a BMW or, you know, whatever. I mean, it, these, the entire accountability framework of schools reflects the tenacity and resources of the parents, not the intrinsic motivation and latent talents of the kids. And so we spend brilliantly as a nation decades thinking we can improve education and close the achievement gap through more worksheets and more testing, right? And, and, and what happens? The kids that are in the less resource schools, the kids who aren't scoring as well in these tests, we just bury them in worksheets. And we think if we just pile enough worksheets on these kids, they'll do better. And, and then we say when the new round of scores, dang, you know, they're not doing better. Well, well, of course they're not doing better. They're bored to tears with this. And, and so when you look at that, you just say, how, how could it be this way? You know, and, and why aren't we collectively incredibly energized to change that? And, and I think you are, and I am, and we hope your listeners are, but way too many people in the positions of power care a lot more about data than they do about the future of kids. Yeah. And care a lot more about how difficult it is to change things instead of making it easier to change things, I would I would say. They're more interested in putting up barriers to change than they are to taking them down. And that's a, a significant, significant challenge, I would I would argue. Um so we want to get into a snap. That's a that's a brilliant snapshot of the philosophy that's behind your work. And I truly appreciate that. It resonates right in here for me. Um, and we're going to get into a little snapshots of how that work is manifesting itself. And so um, Matt, Julie are going to ask you about um, your book and your, and your films, but I want to ask you about your kind of newest project, um, what school could be dot org and so listeners you can just type what school could be dot org into your browser hop on over there and it is a comprehensive collection of resources 
to ask this question, what school could be? So Ted, how, how did, how was the development of what school could be um, come about for you? Yeah. Well, I'll be, I'll try to be brief, but I have to cover a long arc, you know, so I started the very first thing I did when I got focused on this was to make a decision that if, if I could play a part in producing an amazing film about education, that would be an excellent first step. And when I look back over the work I've done, you know, I've made boatloads of mistakes, but that was not one of them. That was really the exact best thing to do first. And I spent six months, found an amazing director and gave him the budget. We filmed for two years. That resulted in the film Most Likely to Succeed, which premiered at Sundance, 25 major film festivals. I turned down Netflix. We did direct to school community screenings. Believe it or not, we're over 10,000 school community screenings over 30 different countries. You know, the most, the, the, it's been most watched in China. That's interesting. It's reached every prefecture in, in Japan. I think that's interesting. But I started traveling with the film. The film shows kids working collaboratively on big, ambitious cross-disciplinary projects, trying things that don't work, trying again, don't work, trying again, don't work. They're highly motivated because they care about it. Teachers trusted to teach their passions and expertise. And it's really done. You know, the director, Greg Whiteley, has since won multiple Emmys. He, He did Last Chance You and Cheer on Netflix. I think many people would say the best documentarian in the country, period. I caught him at a point where it was doable for him and his team. This was four people full time for two years. You know, so they threw themselves into it. I threw myself into it. The film is is on the whatschoolcouldbe.org platform for free. And anybody that wants to, we just want people to watch it. So um, but here's, here's where it got interesting, right, is that I started traveling with it. And it didn't matter where you were coming from. You know, parents would see it and say, oh, my, I want my kids in that kind of school. You know, teachers would say, oh, I'd, wanted, I'd love to teach in that kind of school. Students, I'd love to be in that kind of school. Business people, I'd love to hire people from that type of school. You know, maybe the only people that, that have any pause are these dang policymakers who say, well, how can I measure kids doing creative, differentiated things? You know, like I say, like, maybe you shouldn't. But anyway, started traveling, started traveling with it. And here's what's interesting. Despite everybody saying and we go out of our way in the film to say, this isn't the best school. We don't say copy this school. We say, here's a different school. What do you think? And just broad, broadly held enthusiasm. But people would then say, but we could never do that. Yeah, that's great. But we couldn't do that. And I just sort of back of my mind would say, oh, but I bet you can and so then I started traveling. I traveled for a year, wrote the book, What School Could Be. I'll put that to the side for now. But I was looking for what would be a change model that had a prospect of supporting, respecting the role of classroom teachers, of administrators to lead the way, to set goals for themselves that they believe in, and then start taking confidence building steps to help them reach those goals. And so we took the film as a great um, vehicle to bring communities together to visualize something quite different from same old, same old, get excited about it, but then said, how can we help you get, get there? And it was really not our saying, oh, here's this new clunky curriculum you've got to do or the next Singapore math or Common Core or any of that kind of baloney. This was really, this is what you saw in the film or what you've told us is great. We capture it with great videos and we have these small orchestrated steps 
that we suggest, we don't dictate, we suggest that help you go from teacher-driven learning to student-driven learning, or from abstract academic theory to real-world ties for the learning you're doing, or uh, from assessments that are bubble tests to more authentic forms of assessment. We've got these threads that people told us, these are the big goals we'd love your help with. And then we bring it to life. And we just, I feel like that old, you know, I don't know if you guys are too young to remember Ed Sullivan, but the, the person who's got the long sticks and they get the pie plates spinning. So we have pie plates, you know, like we first pie plate is get your community excited, spin that. Second pie, pie plate is get students to take more leadership in their learning, spin that. Third, get that, get students to connect that learning to the real world, start spinning that, get back to the first, you know, keep them spinning, keep them spinning. But it's been remarkably well received. And I think it's because it's the work of people in the field. You know, like I, I, I feel like in some ways, uh, you know, the, the negative thing would be to say I'm a plagiarist, right? You know, like I don't have the ideas. I just find the ideas. You know, like I, I don't tell teachers what they should do. Teachers tell me what they're doing. They love to do. You know, I don't tell students what you should study. Teachers, students tell me this is when we get excited about our schoolwork. And then we just try to bring it to life with great video resources. And then we took it to a whole nother level a few months ago. We, we now have it on this online platform. So it's like Facebook without the ads or scuzziness. And we have free coaches, free content, free uh, communication. So you could, if you're a school, you know, just to bring it to life, let's say you're that itching to do things different teacher in a school. We have this platform that gives you all sorts of support, ways to get your school excited about it. But also you can set up your own private group. So maybe you start with just four, five, six other like-minded educators in your school, start sharing notes, try some things, invite a few more. You know, it's it's an invite celebrate model instead of a mandate police model, because that's the way things happen. That's the way change actually takes place in the field. It's driven by the people closest to the consequences who are given full leeway to create, invent, take it forward in the way they believe in, and then share with others why they think it was important. And so we've really put in place the resources to try to make that as easy as possible. And all it takes really is to start with one person in a school who sort of viscerally says, there's something about what we've been doing that just doesn't seem right. I know we could do better. And if we find that person, we can help them build their coalition, spread it, get students more engaged, get teachers feeling that joy of engaging and inspiring their kids and start to build real community enthusiasm for a very different vision of school. I love it. Yeah. And I know so many teachers out there who are withering on the vine, quite literally, as they're sitting there thinking, man, I wish I could do something more innovative. I wish I could do this. But often teaching is a siloing experience. And so um, if you're listening out there and this is resonating with you, we'll drop um, Ted's whatschoolcouldbe.org link in our show notes. And Ted, once they get over there, um, how, where can a person, a person can just find the join the community button and press the button and sign themselves up that easy, right? No, we, we, we do have a modest, we, we review people who are signing up to make sure it's not uh, some, you know, some rando yeah, or some somebody, bot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or some, <laughs> somebody from, you know, 10 school districts over who wants to just throw grenades into school board meetings or whatever. Not that that's happening right. anywhere in the country today. Um, right. But then we've got a whole set of introductory resources and say we've got a team of coaches that can sort of 
here's how you can get going and here's what really works. And, and then we do periodic events. I did a, um, you know, I did a game, we call them game changer series. So I did one last week with um, a team out of Pixar that does this great thing that encourages kids to get good at animated storytelling. Uh, you know, I'm doing one Thursday night with uh, a woman who's a real expert in DEI issues. And we're going to go deep on that. And I, my co-host are, you know, usually Tony Wagner, but, you know, for the Pixar one, I brought in Carrie Putnam, a friend of mine who ran Sundance for years. And so we've got, you know, sort of, I think I sort of liken it a bit to, you know, like the best of all fitness centers, you know, like, you know, like, you know, there are some team events, there's some, you know, I can sign up for this routine, I can sign up for that routine, but it's never, and this is a key thing. This is a key thing. When we start to engage with a school, particularly with, you know, somebody in the leadership team. So let's just take a principal. We go to great lengths to say, do not say every teacher has to do this. Simply ask for who is interested in giving this a try. And our first steps are things as easy as a watch a 15 minute video and set aside 20 minutes of class time in the next two weeks. You know, where, where a good example of where to start is, what can we do to encourage kids to ask more thought provoking questions? You know, we all know that that's an important capability for kids and yet, Kindergarten and first grade kids ask lots of questions and high school kids don't. So something's not going in the right direction on that. So we have this great video where we show a master practitioner who has thought hard, experimented with different things and sort of suggests, doesn't dictate, but says, you know, if you just stop and say, anybody have any questions, a lot of kids aren't going to ask a question. And the reason is they haven't given it any thought in advance or often they don't want to risk asking a question people laugh at them for or look stupid, or they don't want to look like a grade grubber. So that whole thing of anybody have any questions does not in any way help kids become great question askers. So what he says instead is he says, here's what I do, kind of like an aw shucks, this is how I do it. You'll come up with something better, but follow me as I do this. I let them break. First, I give them a couple minutes on their own. What questions are you on your mind about whatever the heck we're covering that week? Then I let them form small little clusters. So maybe the three, four, five of us would be in a little group and each of us would have a chance of, I was kind of wondering about this. I was thinking about asking a question kind of like this. Oh, that's a good question. Or maybe this or that. Suddenly we feel safe with that. Then those groups share out those questions. And then you can build on that, right? It tells you a lot about where the kids would like you to go with the material. It gives you great reasons to convene kids into debate. And what happens when just four or five teachers try that in a school, trade notes, oh, oh my gosh, they'll say, we got emails from parents. Like what happened at school today? My kid came home really excited. You know, like that's interesting. And then what they'll do is they'll say to a few other teachers, we tried this, you ought to give it a try too. And, and it's like, oh, in 20 minutes, 15 minutes of watching a video and 20 minutes of class time, you've introduced into school, I call them Trojan ponies, right? They're, they're little pony disruptors that, that give people a sense, oh, I could do that. That's not that hard. And the other thing that's beautiful about it, as opposed to so many things we do in education where we say, do everything you've been doing before and now do more, as though our classroom teachers are sitting around twiddling their thumbs saying, I've got so many free hours each week. I have no idea what to do with my time. The difference here is you actually free up teacher time. 
right? When the students are on their own thinking of questions in small groups, sharing questions, you know, it's not a lot, but it sort of gives you that time to maybe do a one-on-one with a student or think a little bit more about what's next or just take a deep breath because you are now in the process of transferring more responsibility for the learning to the student. And, And as I say, if you just said, Tomorrow, every teacher in the school has to completely change the way you do things. And we're going to tell you, you got to do A, B, and C to make students have more ownership in their learning. You will set yourself up to fail. You know, some will hate being told what to do. Some will think it's a bad idea. They'll bring the sharp knives out. They'll undermine the process. It's a good way to get fired, not a good way to affect change. Very different if you say who wants to. And when you do, tell us how it went. And if you're excited about it, share your enthusiasm. And if it just didn't work, no worries. The downside is 15 minutes of watching a video and 20 minutes of class time for a few teachers. This is not betting the future of your kids. Yeah, I love it. I love it. And I love that approach. Um, And I know that folks that have listened to our podcast in the past also would appreciate something like that. Now, you mentioned the film as being a catalyst uh, for the work at the work that turned into what school could be.org. I want to pass the mic over to Julie um, to ask a little bit more about the film. Just, um, just so listeners out there are aware, you can access the film for free um, on the website. Everybody should watch it. It's really great. Um, Julie, ha- have at it. Yes, I, I loved the film. Thanks for offering it for free. I enjoyed it. Um, I, you know, cheering you on here. Um, I love the idea of starting small um, with profound effects um, in schools. And I like the idea of throwing the entire old model out. Um, but we have this model and how do we change it? So it's got to start somewhere. So I just love this. We can't just keep throwing up our hands decade after a decade. So I just love it. One question I had um, thinking about, like looking at the, what the students need, the teachers love to work there, um, especially as uh, an instructor at a, a university. Um, that's not my day job, but my my evening job. Um, what do you think the teachers who are most likely to succeed? <laughs> so we think about like portrait of a graduate. I see some of these things on your on your site there. Uh, what's the portrait of a future teacher, um, and how do we help build and support that generation. What do you think about that? Well, I, I do have the privilege of working with some great, you know, friends and, uh, you know, other like-minded groups. And so one I work closely with is Ed Leader 21 and Valerie Greenhill, who is remarkable. And they've done a lot of work on portrait of a graduate, but also portrait of a teacher. Um, and, and I always encourage people check out what they're doing because it's really great. Uh, on the teach, this is one of the things, one of the you know, and I've traveled a lot, right? You know, and I've met with a ton of teachers and I love hearing from them. And they just share with me. It's often in the most powerful and emotional ways, you know, some of the issues they confront daily. And and that's a whole different discussion about the, 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 the sets of challenges we pile on our teachers that really are far more society's challenge. You know, we somehow expect teachers to help kids learn, but also to feed them, to buy, you know, take care of clothes when they don't have clothes, to buy them supplies. I mean, it's just like, wait a minute. I mean, there's only so much you can ask, you know, a person to do, and we just keep asking more and more. Um, But one of the things I hear again and again is how 
teachers feel their school of education experience didn't prepare them and that the PD they get is often dreadful. And, and, and when you visit schools of education, it really is a lot of lecture-based, I have to share, this is an anecdote that makes a point. I interviewed a, someone who was in graduate school at a very top university, taking a course on John Dewey and the importance of learning by doing, which they related to me, consisted of 30 lectures. <laughs> and, and when when she approached the teacher and said, it seems like there's a bit of tension here between what Dewey stands for and the way this class was organized, the teacher, long-term tenured professor, revered professor at that school, did not seem to understand the irony of lecturing <laughs> hour after hour after hour about the importance of learning by doing. And you realize, right, that this is going to sound horrible, but anyway, that a lot of times people in universities are convinced that the students go there because they want to hear from the, the professor, right? You know, like, like I am a world-class expert in this, and so I'm going to grace you with my thoughts on this topic. It turns out that's a terrible way to learn, you know, and, and whether it's online or whether it's in person, you know, you know, there are very few people that can mesmerize audiences hour in after hour and out with brilliant lectures, you know, right? So, you know, one of the things, and this I've made a practice of, you know, like I, you heard me before, I, I actually, over the course of, of my journey, have concluded the single most important challenge in U.S. education is how to help an existing school change. You know, that's where the kids are, right? I mean, these people that, these, I think it's cockamamie, these people that say, and there's a lot of this going on now. Let's just take a bulldozer and destroy public education and we'll replace it with some new schools with vouchers or something. Well, you know, you know it's like, wait a minute. You know, like I, I did a film about a charter school. I think some charter schools are great. I think a lot of them aren't. I think there are great mainstream public schools. A lot of them aren't. There are a few great private schools. Actually, a lot of private schools aren't very good. You know, so it's not the type of school, the governance or the tuition levels that matter. It's what's happening in that school. And so when people say, we'll just get rid of the schools that educate 85, 90% of our kids. And, and you look at the charter school movement, which is now 30 plus years into it, and it educates 5% of our kids. You know, like you're in dreamland, right? I mean, we need to help existing schools make progress, whatever type of school that is. Here's what's interesting. I can't find a school of education anywhere that offers a course on how to change an existing school. You know, not even high-tech high graduate school of education. They have a course on how to create a new school, good for them. Nothing on how to change an existing school. Not Bank Street, not Harvard Graduate School of Education. Not, none of these, you know, like, wait a minute. Like, isn't this a bit concerning that the single biggest challenge, the thing that we have to do with the utmost urgency and no school of education offers a course on it. Nor I can't find schools of education that offer courses on how to organize and manage a student-driven classroom and hold students accountable to a high standard that's not a recall-based exam. I'm sure somebody must be doing that. You guys are probably doing that, but but it's not mainstream, right? It's it's not like you just pop into some of these name brand schools that charge prodigious sums 
for an undergraduate or master's degree in education are doing the things that matter. It's like, how can this be? And, and so, you know, we've been actually working with University of Kentucky and Arizona State University. And I keep saying that we could offer way better resource, you know, we, we could end run existing schools of education. And actually the stuff on whatschoolcouldbe.org is a great basis for it. I mean, we, we just lay it out there. Here is how you can change an existing school. We, we make it very, I think, approachable for a classroom teacher that just says, I'm teaching the way I was taught. It's not working. By the way, and, and you guys are probably seeing this as well, but, but one of the huge, you know, the, the last 22 months has been a nightmare for everybody, 23, 24 months. Uh, one of the things I'm hearing again and again is kids that have largely been out of school running free trying to get them back into the desk and listening, like the behavior issues are rampant. And I say like, don't get them back in the desk and make them listen to your lecture. You know, like they don't want to do that. You don't want to do that. It shouldn't be done. Let's start, you know, letting them pursue what they're interested in. So I think they're real opportunities, but you know, you, you highlight, I think one of the big challenges is, is if we're expecting teachers in the field to shift we sure should have leadership from our schools of education instead of having them lag. Yeah, I, w- I would just add that one program that I've become pretty interested in, in the last few years is at the University of the Pacific. They have a a transformation, uh, a like social transformation program that is rooted in action and education. And so I would say check them out. But I don't think it's specifically says transformation of schools you know it says transformation of society using schools as a catalyst so i don't know if that's a if how that interacts with school change you know so well directly it's encouraging yeah that's you know for them yeah but but i i agree you know and i'll let julie continue here with questions that i think that those types of programs are few and far between well and absolutely and i think uh when we think about like the teachers who are going into the field, you know, they have a lot of those assets that a portrait of a graduate of our school system <laughs> that we would hope that they would have, you know, they want to collaborate. Uh, they've got some confidence. Uh, they want to be creative. Um, but then I think they're disillusioned when they get there and they find out that even if they've learned something about project-based learning and authentic assessments, um, that, you know, they're asked to be accountable for really implementing other people's ideas. And that is the sum total of the job, sprinkle in some classroom management, which is impossible in some places. And um, you've got a recipe for people leaving in droves. So what I find exciting about your work um, is it's a small window into like one teacher can, you know, get a coalition of the willing and and start again. Um, But that's really, some of the disillusionment that I see um, with some of the new teachers that I have or people who are starting their, uh, they wanna teach. Uh, they heard there's a teacher shortage and they're unhappy with whatever career they've chosen. They thought like, this is where I can really make a difference. We have a lot of really caring people in, in education. And when they get there, um, sometimes, you know, it, it's a difficult place to work. Uh, so <laughs> I don't know if you've, if you've seen any, uh, anybody who's been able to find some leadership um, that they could really lead from within. I don't know if you have any examples of that. 
Well, I mean, you, you know, I do, I do want to follow up because it's important to to underscore, you know, the, the the what's happening among our education workforce, right? I mean, you look at the last two years, which have been grueling. You look at, I mean, I, I just feel so sorry for anybody in administration because there's no policy you could announce where everybody's, you know, high-fiving and cheering. And, you know, I think we went in the initial months to, you know, from a situation where everybody really did up the level of respect and appreciation they had for our teachers, that was good. I think it's sort of morphed. And I think that that now everybody's just really grumpy and it's being taken to a whole different level with the school board wars. And, and I just think like, my gosh, you know, like how is it going to be productive if we're, and, you know, accelerating the rates of departures from our teaching force in the field. You know, like th- this is really, you know, shooting ourselves in the foot in the worst way. Um, you know, so that I think is really serious. I, I do think as well, I had this discussion with um, somebody tied in very high to the U.S. Department of Education about the fact that we, had, I don't think the way the money that's been going to the districts has been well thought out. You know, like they're like what I hear from district after district is water, water everywhere, but not a drop to spend on, you know, the things that really matter, you know. And so you can give a district, you know, what Philadelphia, right? Philadelphia Public School, I think it was close to a million, a billion bucks, 600 million. I mean, it's a massive amount of money going to large school districts. But, you know, there's only so much plexiglass you can, you know, it's like. You know, we should be really stepping back. I mean, I, I'm a big fan, and I know Posse Solberg quite well, who architected the changes in Finland. And they just stepped back and said, if we want to be, you know, an amazing country, it has to start with really investing heavily in our teaching force. And that was really rethinking schools of education. That was paying teachers you know, salaries that are commensurate with other top professional areas, you know, and the joke and it's not a joke really, but, but Posse will tell you about the, you know, the joke kind of goes like this. He's in a bar and he, t- he runs into a doctor and a lawyer and he asks him, why are you a doctor? And the doctor says, well, I wanted to be a teacher, but I couldn't cut it. So I became a doctor. And the lawyer says, yeah, I wanted to be a teacher and I didn't get accepted to any of the schools of education. So I became a lawyer. It's like, okay, that, that is a country that's serious about its future. You know, we're running around, you know, banning books. You know, it's like, is the United States serious about its future? I, I would be more than happy to take the side of the debate that says, no, we, we are actively trying to undermine the future of our kids and our nation with really poorly thought out policies and priorities. So, you know, so, yeah, the leadership, I, I, I have to tell you that they're, they're, I've got a friend who's a biologist and we were talking the other day and he told me this, this is stuck in my head, but, but there's a point to this. There, there's a, there's a type of army ant. And so visualize a set of ants where there's just a long string of these ants and they're all following the lead ant, except the lead ant gets kind of confused and starts to wander and, and ends up looping back into the trailing ants of course, everybody keeps following the leader into this circle and the ants just keep going around and around and around in this death spiral until they finally die from exhaustion. And I feel like that's the story of leadership in U.S. education. 
You know, it's like those lead ants have just, they're just following the followers and they're just asking everybody to just keep going in this stupid death spiral. And, you know, it's like Arnie Duncan, no leadership. John King, no leadership. Betsy DeVos, oh, horrible, you know. But I mean, is is Cardone any better? No, you know, like they, none of them offer an aspiring, interesting point of view about how we can invest in education resources, support and invest in the teaching excellence we need to prepare our kids to take on and solve the problems that we adults kind of ignored and are putting in their laps. And it's like, without that kind of leadership, it's up to us, which is why this group is so interesting. Like, like, okay, they're not going to do anything. They're going to be the ant just lost in that circle of spiraling ants. You know, but but the beauty of that death spiral is that any ant can peel out and start going in a sensible direction. <laughs> Other ants will follow you. And so the, the leaders are going to keep circling around. Who the heck cares? Let's just get out of the death spiral and move forward. Yeah. Ted, thanks for bringing that up and, and sharing that story. That's a that's a great image uh, to, to bring to light some of these things. Um, I'm a big fan of your, you know, what school could be org. Same thing with the movie, most likely most likely to succeed. It's a great picture that sort of inspires, makes you wonder, makes you contemplate what could be. Another thing uh, that I'm a big fan of with your work is your book, right? What school could be? I remember reading that um, in a doctorate program at Northeastern and I'm sitting down with this book and I feel like it takes me through a tour, right? Through the country. I'm hopping in your car. I'm going with you from school to school, from school board to school board. Another thing I appreciate about it, though, that jumped out to me and I was able to share it was you um, showed diverse schools across the country, but you also showed diverse types of schools. You didn't shy away from the prestigious school in New England. You showed them and you showed some great things they're doing. And you also showed public schools and rural schools and urban schools. And another thing I got from that book was as I was reading it, I would actually reach out to different school leaders in the book. I'd make a note like, oh, I want to email them. And so I'd email them and, and I got some great conversations uh, as a result of the book. But anyway, bring us into your process. Um, what was your process like uh, writing that book? And what was the spark that got you saying, I guess, start with that. What was the spark that got you saying, I need to write this book? And what was that process like? Yeah, it was, there was a lot of serendipity to it. So I was um, back to, you know, like late July of 2015, uh, a mutual friend connected me to a guy in Fargo, North Dakota, who runs their TEDx event. Th this does lead somewhere. And, and he was also doing kind of a venture incubator. And so the guy said, oh, you ought to call Ted. He was a venture capitalist. He might be able to help you. So this guy, Greg Tavine, who's a great guy, calls me. And I'm just talking to him in late July and about, you know, venture capital and things like that. And then, you know, he asked me, what are you interested in? I told him I was really thinking a lot about school, but this was early in my process. And then like mid-conversation, he says, oh, my gosh, I just got a cancellation for next week's TED event. Can you come to Fargo, North Dakota five days from now and give a TED Talk? And, and if it had been any other state besides North Dakota, I would have said no. But for four years running with my New Year's list, I had been to 49 states, but never been to North Dakota. So four years in a row on my to-do list was go to North Dakota. So there I had a reason to go to North Dakota. 
And so I'm flying out and I'm thinking it'll be fun to go someplace new. And as I was thinking about the talk, which I'm actually trying to put together on the plane trip, um, I just sort of said, it's kind of a lark. Uh, man, why don't I just go? Why don't I go to all, all over the place? And then I said, well, why, all over the place. Why don't I go to all 50 states? And the, I was able to, I was in a fortunate position to be able to fund it all myself. And I recognize that's a fortunate position. But that meant I didn't have to go where the fees were. And, and I think a lot of times the, the authors or so-called thought leaders in education go to where the fees are. So you'll see a lot of things about the stress of rich kids. And, you know, I mean, because Choate pays them to go there. But East High School in Newark doesn't pay them to go there. Or a tribal village in Western Alaska is not bringing in a thought leader. And so I was able to just say, I spent a third of my time in rural America. I was in urban America. I was in Indian Reservation. I was in, you know, I just sort of went to where the kids are. And then I just sort of, but I do these things. I just say, I do these community events. You know, I, I sometimes show the film, whatever. But I'd always say, when I was particularly as a group, I'd say, I'm in no hurry to leave. I'll stay as long as any of you want to talk. It turns out that was the best thing I could have ever done because that last conversation was always the most amazing. And the reason is the person that will stay and stay and stay to be the last person to talk to you is the person that's got the most emotional story they want to share with you. And my gosh, with so many of these teachers, I mean, it's like, you know, I don't cry easily, but, you know, you just got this sense of their unbelievable dedication and the daily challenge they had of, do I do what's best for my kids or do I do what the state tells me to do? Do, you know, and they know it. You know, that's where I sort of said, oh my gosh. I mean, like that, I started at the beginning talking about this is the teachers know, right? I mean, there's, there's not, I don't think when people see the film, when teachers see the film or read my book, they're not saying, oh my gosh, I never thought of this, right? I, I, I think if anything, they're surprised that some business guy actually thinks it's, you know, kind of got onto this. Um, but, but it's not a surprise. It's more that, that the reason they entered the profession has largely been hammered on by failed accountability measures imposed on our schools by, I'm not even sure they're always well-intentioned, but state legislators who honestly couldn't pass the 11th grade tests that keep kids from graduating high school. Yeah, you know, it's like it's like the most insanely infuriating thing, right? Is that 15% of our kids don't finish high school. Almost always it's because they can't pass math. I guarantee you, if one out of a thousand state legislators could pass a, an algebra final exam tomorrow morning, I'd be pleasantly surprised. You know, it's just it's a bunch of stuff that nobody uses in their daily life. And yet, because it lends itself to these normalized or standardized tests with a bunch of small 30 to 45 second tidbit questions to let these, at, these, I have to watch my life, you know, like, get going you know, these, these bureaucratic test designers that just think the most important thing in the world is to get a bell curve. Like, this is a good test because we got a bell curve. You know, no, that's not a good, a good test is something that reflects a student develop, developing competencies that help them later in life. A good test is not a bell curve. And because you have a bunch of low-level math tidbits that almost no adult ever uses, that photo math on your phone does perfectly, 
So you get a bell curve. That doesn't give you an A plus on test design. That's actually an F, you know, because it's not getting at what matters to a kid in their future. And, and I think that was, if anything, what really moved me. And then, you know, I wasn't really planning at the start of that trip to write a book. You know, you know I just, I just at the end, you know, as it evolved, I've, I just said, my gosh, they were so generous with their time. These stories are so unbelievably compelling, you know, and, and I'd written a book before with Tony. So I felt like, okay, I think I could write a book. And then I just said, I'm going to do this. And then I'll tell two stories of myself. One, I wrote the first draft, got done with it. I said, I'm not sure I even want to reread it. <laughs> you know? So I, I, if I had thrown it out entirely, I wouldn't have had the energy to do a second, a, a totally different draft. But I said, okay, I'll put it on my hard drive. I'm sure I'll come back to that. I never came back to it. And, but it made me step back and say, what did I really, what did I really learn here? You know, like my first draft was first I went here, then I went here, I started in Kentucky, you know, and it's like, honestly, you know, maybe if I were a celebrity, people would care what time I got into Indianapolis on a Sunday night, but nobody cares. I mean, I didn't care. My wife didn't care. How's anybody else going to care? But, but what I was able to do, you know, and the other thing that I had the advantage of is I actually had a, a pretty good sized team organized a trip for me. So it was exhausting because I did things 7.30 in the morning till 10 at night on Monday through Thursday, 7.30 in the morning till 4, 4.30 on Friday, often a Saturday morning. And I just had this unbelievable exposure to so many different things. And so there was so much I learned from that. You know, my subtitle, I think, says it all, Insights and Inspiration from Teachers Across America. Um, and so I stepped back and said, what were the takeaways from this? And then I came up with this idea of trying to pick one or two things that blew me away from each state to make the point that this isn't just being done in Finland or Singapore, God forbid, if somebody thinks that's a, a role model, but it's being done everywhere. It's sort of everywhere, but not, not pervasive, but, but, and then across all grade levels. I mean, I have kindergarten kids through colleges, you know, it's, and, and what's so interesting, I've been, I still use it, but I like, I'll give you an example. I had a call uh, last week, maybe it was a week and a half ago with, with Gretchen Whitmer, the governor of, of Michigan. So I sent her my section on Michigan and I looked at this, I mean, like it's been a while, so I had to go back and look at it. And it's just like this one section on Michigan tells a story, right? It's got these kids in Lansing, in, in Grand Rapids, designing boards of different types, you know, longboards, surfboards, skateboards, often going on and making a living doing that. It has in, in Lansing, a state legislator in a meeting with 25 people where the topic comes up of algebra, keeping kids from getting a high school degree. And I make the point, none of you can do, you, none of you could solve a simultaneous equation if your life depended on it. And, and, you, and then this teacher in Adrian, who is a National Hall of Fame teacher, who said, every day I get up and look in the mirror. Do I do what's best for my kids or do I do what the state tells me to do? So I said, Governor Whitmer, there it is, right? Give kids something meaningful, something that combines theory with hands-on learning, something that leads to a career, something they enjoy. And you get amazing, amazing results in Grand Rapids. You've got legislators in the process who don't have a clue what they're shoving down the throats of the school. And you've got teachers facing the daily dilemma of do I do what the legislators tell me to do or do I do what gets kids excited? Boom. It was like, okay, that's, 
that was Michigan. <laughs> 50 others like that. So that's okay. I was happy about that. As you think about the book, as you think about the things you've taken away, what was most surprising? Well, I mean, you know, like what's most surprising is, is wh- why this keeps happening. I mean, you know, like I, I did something a, a couple months ago with a bunch of undergraduates in Kansas. You know, there was, there was like a dozen undergraduate aspiring teachers in Kansas we were talking about. It. And one of them finally said, you know, it's not just you, you know, like uh, we read from so many interesting, thoughtful people who make the point that this is just wholly obsolete. We need to change. Why aren't we, you know, why aren't we? And, and I think that's just the mind numbing thing. And, and, you know, what I worry about is, you know, 10 years ago, I said, boy, I just wish education were a priority in elections. Um, that would be so great if education bubbled up and became an absolute focal point in elections, be careful what you wish for, right? You know, now it is, and it's not in the way that we want it to be. And, and that's not healthy. And so, you know, I, I just feel like as long as these kids are out there and trust us, I'm grateful for the work you guys are doing. You fight every day for better outcomes for these kids. I feel it's the least I can do. But, you know, one of the things just sticks in my mind is, you know, when you hang around these young kids and they just sort of assume adults are making good decisions on their behalf, we collectively know we're not. So it's the fight worth fighting. What do you think pre- prevents us from, from making that change? You've mentioned failed accountability measures. You've mentioned a lot of things. And there's, there's many things, right? It's a complex situation. But as you think right now in your interactions, like, What's one or two things that this is an issue that's preventing this change from happening time and time and time again? What's frustrating you the most? Yeah, no, or what's exciting me the most? You know, <laughs> it is the the ants. You know, the followers, the followers are following the followers, right? It's just a whole bunch of followers out there that mindlessly go in a circle, thinking if they can go in the circle faster, that's progress. I mean, give me a break. Here's what's here's what I think is. You know, having spent a fair amount of time on this, when you say you could do jump through the normal hoops, you know, grind away at fact-based exams on content you're unlikely to ever use as an adult, get better grades, get better test scores, get into a slightly better college, maybe make it to the finish line. Maybe that turns into a good job. Often it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't. You know, if the alternative is ephemeral, you know, exciting, but hard to quantify, you know, more curious kids, more creative kids, kids that are excited about school. You know, there's a lot of risk aversion in the system. And I think people sort of say, yeah, that sounds really good, but grind away. The thing I'm really excited about and that's really defining what I'm doing going forward is, and you see it in so many of the examples I highlight and what school could be. Here's what I think is our opportunity. Imagine this. Imagine middle school and high school kids getting really good at something they enjoy, largely learning it on their own, exploring and refining those capabilities in the safe context of making their school better or making their community better, but turning it into a hireable proficiency that lets that 18 year old make more than the average college graduate. You know, I think suddenly path B gets a lot more easy to visualize and say, yeah, I can jump through the mindless hoops, hope that I get into a slightly better college, spend 75 to 300K 
to get a degree or I can go rogue. And I'm starting to see if I go rogue, I can actually do something as a teenager. I can create a career path. And with that career path, demonstrate I can make more than most college graduates, but also when conditions change, which we all know, we all say that, well, you know, these kids are going to have, you know, 30 jobs over the course of their lifetime and six or seven different careers, to which I say, well, then why don't we teach them early about how they can create a career path? And so I feel like if we could start to put points on the board, and I've been doing some micro pilots. I did one in North Dakota where we just asked some students to do something with digital media tools to help a local nonprofit you care about. That's all. No support, no course, no nothing. Pick a nonprofit you care about, try to help them with digital media tools. Several of these kids did marketing campaigns on TikTok, got offers, job offers. You know, these weren't minimum wage job offers. These were 25 bucks an hour job offers. And, and in my book, I write about, you know, kids that become kind of geek squad to support their local community, kids that get good at making films or doing graphic design, kids that do website design, kids that run and implement, you know, create and implement social media campaigns or traditional skills or even better clusters of students. So two kids that love culinary with a kid that gets good at website and digital media skills, maybe event planning, maybe a podcast about the culinary experiences with this, you know, like there's this burst of innovation that I think we could start to unleash in our younger kids that could, you know, not only help those kids' futures. And if they go to college, I, I, you know, I was just at a, at a very selective college and, you know, a bunch of the kids are on work study and they're, they're like scooping beans into burritos. And you think about amazingly talented high school kids that get into the one of most one of the most selective colleges in the country in the world, and and they scoop beans into the burrito. As I say, look at the math. If you can make twenty five bucks an hour, working ten hours a week in summers, right? Which is the going rate for a lot of those skills I just mentioned. So if you go to college, it's the best source of scholarship money, right? Is higher earning power, right? I mean, why is it that we think? that you should just keep jumping through these pointless courses to get into a more slightly more selective college to then go deep into debt when you're know, like, hey, what if you just you know got really good at some things? Because that actually matters to employers. And that actually will get the attention of admissions officers if college is your chosen path. But it also respects the kids that just don't particularly like academics. And, and by the way, that's not 3% of kids. There are a lot of kids that that realize, I mean, maybe they don't fully realize it, but let's face it, a whole lot of this stuff is baked in because a bunch of education PhDs value it. And really nobody else does. You know, it's just, it's like, there it is. So let's just do it because some education PhDs that don't think very hard about this stuff say you should do it. Uh, you know, so that's what I'm excited about. You know, like path B, make that more vivid in terms of being able to create career paths for yourself, you know, learning and mastering skills that you find interesting, perfecting them in the context of informed, responsible, contributing citizenship, and be off and running with career, whether you can keep going in college or not. Amen. You are speaking our language 100%. <laughs> I know Julie and I are kind of smiling back and forth at each other. It's kind of like you, you've just described what we try to, what we're trying to do uh, at our school with our program. He'll come visit us sometimes, but um, yeah, we're all about, you know, these kids, you know, 
we actually have, we, we have a course, we call it iSearch, but um, you know, where they get to, they, they choose what they want to learn about and they, they go out and they, they, they work with an expert in the field. They, they conduct field work. They, they, they do research, they put together products, they bring something, you know, they end up presenting what they've learned at the end of the year with, you know, a 45 minute presentation. Right now they're doing shark tank stuff. They're designing their own prototypes. They're going to actually, they're, they're doing commercials. They're bringing it to market. You know, um, we're all about that kind of stuff. You know, I mean, I love that. And you, and you see it, right? Kids love it, right? It's not like you're shoving it down their throat. And when they say, am I ever going to use this? You have to like cross your fingers and said, well, maybe just maybe someday you're going to have to know how to balance a chemical equation or, or maybe someday you'll have to factor a polynomial. And this is real for the kids, right? And they get good at competencies that matter. Good for you guys. I mean, talk about problem solving 101. I mean, these kids, you know, the new technology is coming all the time. And it's it's hard for us to keep up with it, but you you show the kids like, hey, there's this new app, we video. You guys want to check it out and see if you can figure out how to work it and you know make some make some cool videos. Yeah, oh, sure, they're all on it, and then they become experts in it, and then they're teaching us how to do it. So it's it's super fun. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, and, and you you say it so well, but that's that's the magic, right? And and if you wait for that new emerging app to work its way through curriculum and testing to make it. It never gets there, right? You know, but if it's a real challenge in the world and kids are encouraged to vet, you know, identify vet and get good at state-of-the-art tools, they do that, right? And it becomes a hireable proficiency that makes them so much more productive. Really, Matt, I think it's quite powerful. So I'm wondering, so you've had all these, you've had these amazing experiences. You've been all over the the world (laughs) uh, visiting schools and checking things out. And here we are, you know, I'm wondering if, if, um, you know, obviously COVID-19 has impacted the field of education, you know, are you still seeing, are you seeing different, you know, critical issues at this point in time? Is it, has anything changed um, as far as your ideas are concerned around education because of the pandemic hitting? Yeah. You know, it's, it's, uh, I, I think I said earlier, my biggest surprise is how this just keeps in place. And, and so, you know, I, I feel like, okay, this school year, I think everybody, it sort of feels like mile 23 of a marathon. And, and so I'm deeply grateful to our educators in the field. And, and realistically, I feel like if I were in mile 23 of a marathon and somebody said, why don't you stop for a second and do some jumping jacks? I'd probably say, you know, I'm just going to finish this race. And so that's what I think, but I hope you know that, and and we're pulling together our thoughts about something around a fresh start with the new school year. And you know, I just know that if if it's it was one of the issues I take with you know the, with our Secretary of Education is it is all of his language is around you know like getting back to normal, and that's the last thing we want to do, right? And and what what have we seen during the pandemic? I mean, who kept learning, right? It was the kids who could manage their own learning, who were doing things that motivated them because it had real world implications. And, and the teachers that kept the, the, the joy of teaching in place were not the ones who went from talking at kids in person to talking at them on Zoom, but were really engaging and inspiring those kids. And so, you know, I think it's a huge swing factor for any school, any community, any, any big region like Philadelphia or a state like Colorado or wherever. And some are going to get it right and others are going to 
be like those ants just circling in the dead, you know, like, like we're tired, we're going to take a quick breather, and then we're going to get back to our normal pace and our death spiral. I mean, you know, and it's, it's tragic. But the thing that I, I do say to families or to classroom teachers or, you know, clusters of, of educators in a school or broader than that is it's different from global warming, right? You know, if we make, you know, we being any one of us make good choices on behalf of the kids that are trusting us, those kids are going to be in way better shape. And if kids one county over or kids in a different state or whatever, if they just do same old thing, if they like marching in the death spiral, I wish they wouldn't. But, but, but because a bunch of other kids are marching in a death spiral or schools are, that doesn't mean you have to do it as well. You can break out. And, and so do it, right? I mean, like you have no reason not to other than a failure to step back and see education in conventional form for what it is, which is a bunch of people chasing fool's gold with, you know, kids doing things that only, you know, put them up against machine intelligence and wipe out the things that really matter. And I think people need to understand that they need to do their homework, but so I don't know. I mean, that that to me is I'm sort of a, a bit in limbo in terms of whether I'm pleasantly surprised or devastated or perplexed or whatever. But but I do I do feel like, you know, like it, it doesn't seem that complex or subtle a thing to say, here's what the world demands. Here's what kinds of learning experiences help kids get good at those things. Here's what we've done to prepare kids for dreary factory jobs that robots are now doing. Do you really want to keep preparing kids to do what a robot does better? Or do you want to really unleash their creativity and curiosity, which, by the way, we see in abundance in these kids when they're toddlers, right? Oh, that's interesting because I, uh, I have an article that I'm going to share later that, <laughs> for my plug that uh, kind of connects to that. But uh, yeah, I love all your points there. I know I'm definitely kind of worried. I thought that this was going to be a great opportunity for, for, educators to think outside the box, just really start to do school differently, that uh, there was a, an opportunity here for real change to kind of happen. And I'm, I can see, I see that not everybody has really grasped onto that. So I don't know, we'll see what happens. But, you know, I'm really wondering, you know, what are what are the next things for you? Where, where are you headed next? Well, I, you know, continue to, to be supportive. We have a, um, you know, really great team with the whatschoolcouldbe.org initiative. And, um, with uh, an amazing executive director, which which is a big step forward for us, and so I'm, you know, supporting that every which way I can. Really focused on this whole thing around, um, you know, Path B, you know, hireable proficiencies, and um, you know, generally trying to get sleep at night instead of worrying too much. You know, so um, yeah. So anyway, it's 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 just an interesting time. You know, it's a, there are things we're learning about each other and about the country these days that probably I never expected to see in my lifetime, but that's what I'm seeing. Ted, your insights here have been amazing. And I'm sure that they have sprung some little reflections for our group of co-hosts here. And as we end, uh, as we near the end of our episode, I want to invite all of our co-hosts to kind of share a reflection. And um, Ted, we'd love for you to share your reflection too. And um, we'll just kind of go around and and uh, share what's been coming up for, for each of us in the midst of this conversation. Um, hey, Julie, you want to go first? What do you, what's this conversation make you think about education? 
Well, I will never forget the image of those ants in the death spiral. <laughs> so I'd like to like see myself, you know, as one of the ants who's peeled away and just inviting other people, come on over, <laughs> like the weather's fine over here. Um, give it a go, uh, take a little risk. Uh, so that's just um, something that's gonna stay with me forever, Ted. <laughs> that, that image in my head, I just love it. <laughs> That in the 23rd mile of the, the uh, marathon, because I do admit to being a bit tired. <laughs> sure enough. Yeah. Thanks, Julie. Matt, what about you? What's on your mind? Uh, there's a lot on my mind, but I'll share this one quote uh, that Ted said, if it's routine, it will be done by a machine. And, and, and I know that to be true. And I think about that a lot, but I think that gets lost. Um, when I'm in classrooms, I think that gets lost or that's not talked about enough in schools because too often, even, even teachers that no longer say they want kids to memorize um, information, they, they say they're beyond that. But if you go into the classroom, like what are the kids doing that can't be done by a machine? What are the kids doing that they aren't being taught to do menial tasks that a machine could do? What are the kids doing that aren't going to lead them in, in that direction. And that is a, is a foundational thing that I think alone could uh, disrupt education and move it in a new path. Yeah. So thanks for sharing that. Janine, what's on your mind? Yeah. I, I'm going with the visuals too, like as combining with Julie and, and Matt there, I was, I had a vision of like robots, like I had, we should not be teaching children to just be robots. Um, you know, and uh, one thing Ted had said about like this idea of having students to be able to ask questions like all the time. And I talked to this about my, my, I just had a session with my undergrads the other day and I was like, you know, almost like playing 20 questions with them or like how one question should lead to another question, lead to kind of, I guess a Socrates sort of thing, but um, you know, that be curious, wonder about things, you know, don't be afraid to ask questions. When I think of that, that, that the ants walking around in circles and everybody being followers is like, they're, they have no questions to ask. They're just, they're just doing what everybody else is doing, you know, but you know, why are we doing it this way? How can it be done differently? Why is that happening? You know? Um, so I really like that idea of just, you know, how do you get these kids to really think think more deeply and engage with their, the world around them and then, and really use the world as our classroom. Yeah. I love that. I think my reflection on this conversation is around Ted's point that the more that we try to set a kind of chip away at the edges of change in education, the, the more it becomes clear that that is not going to work. We've been really trying to do education full-scale education reform now since the 70s, but we've been doing it, you know, with little drips and drabs here and there. So like two schools open up in the Philadelphia public school system, or two schools end up in the Detroit uh, public system, and those schools are meant to be the change agents within that system. But Ted, your point about, you know, the education of what, six to seven percent of Americans of American children is happening in private and charter schools. That means that 90 plus percent, 93 plus percent is happening in traditional public schools as we know them. And if we're not getting in there and whole scale making that change happen, then um, then we're not really going to be doing much, honestly. We're only going to be changing the paradigm for, you know, 
just a smidge number of kids within the system. So I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about that. And I'm thinking about your other point, Ted, is that you have to invite people in to make that change. Because if you mandate change, then it just becomes another thing that you have to do by extending the invitation and saying, check this out, give this a try. Then that grassroots effort is going to create more lasting possibility than the mandates ever, ever will. Um, Ted, just thinking through all of that you shared and maybe our reflections, what's on your mind at the end of this conversation? Well, I'd, I'd start with how grateful I am for the work you guys are doing. And when you describe what you're doing in your schools, you know, it's it's inspiring for me. You know, as you guys know, I think we all feel uh, some degree of energy drain. And so when you, for me, I, I should say, when I encounter people that are fighting so hard and doing these really creative, in, interesting and bold things with their students, I just say, yes, this is it. This is, you know, it's, it's, it's happening. And, you know, I, I feel like I just wish the, that there was a more broadly recognized perspective of the urgency of doing this. You know, my friends in the technology sector say that the last two years have we've seen 10 years of digitization of the economy happen in two years. You know, I mean, automation is, I don't know if people think that, that, that this stuff is just going to go away. You know, it's not, it's going to get better and better and better. And if you're on the right side of it, which is for some creating it, but far, far more of the opportunities are being able to use it, right? You know, the, the who around you are the ones who are super productive, right? They, they figure out this tool. They know that they can do that. Oh, a schedule meeting with, you know, whatever. They just sort of like, they're fluent with these resources that let an individual be dramatically more productive than they would be otherwise, which means the ability to take on huge challenges and actually create things that have tremendous impact is that much more in our hands today. And if we leaned into that, if we had that be the heart and soul of school, which you guys are doing, you know, that's what's so inspiring here. And you see it, right? If that's the heart and soul of school, these kids are off to the races and, and actually, and I think you guys would, would vouch for this. The kids that generally aren't off to the races are not the rich micromanaged kids. That's what I find so doggone perplexing here. If we really and honestly care about the achievement gap, let's start figuring out what achievement really is. And achievement is not, you know, uh, the number of words that you can, you know, have familiarity with because parents have great vocabularies or you know early access to motion math on an ipad or all that stuff it's being able to create something bold and stare down failure and the micromanaged rich kids can't do that particularly well and a lot of the kids that are being left behind and screwed over by this system actually rise to that and so if we're serious about broadening the opportunity landscape you know, it's right there in front of us for how to do it. And and so thank you to, to what you guys are doing. And, uh, you know, we can't give up on this. I, I just hope that come September, people are sort of saying, okay, this is it. We really are changing because, and then maybe I'll leave it with this. When people say schools can't change, I say to them, March, 2020, you know, don't tell me schools can't change. In two weeks, everything changed because there was urgency. 
And, and if we can have an urgent response to something like a pandemic, why don't we have an urgent response to giving kids opportunity in life? Yeah, snaps to that for sure, for sure. Listen, Ted, it's been a pleasure and we always end our episodes with an opportunity for our guests and our co-hosts to plug something that they've been reading, listening, watching, eating, whatever you wanna plug. Um, I'm gonna toss the mic over to Janine and then Ted, I'll loop back to you for your plug. Janine, what do you wanna plug this, this evening? All right, I'm gonna give a shout out to my brother-in-law because he sent me this article that I thought was rather interesting. Um, it's called A Top Researcher says it's time to rethink our entire approach to preschool. And it, the, within it, there is um, a, a recent uh, study that just came out that found that there were actually negative side effects to kids going to pre-kindergarten. Um, that long-term effects, like in, in, with immediate stuff when they first went to like kindergarten, first grade, that kind of stuff, like, yeah, those kids were the ones that were like following directions a bit more, that kind of stuff. But long, over the long-term, um, they actually ended up having more issues in school and ended up doing worse by the time that they were in middle school. So I'm not, I, I just think that it's really interesting and it kind of kind of ties into this, we mentioned this earlier, um, this idea of kids uh, at the young age, those young ages, like where's the play, where's the curiosity, where's the, you know, inquisitive nature, uh, you know, we're squashing it in a lot of these kids and that, that, and that ends up being a problem down way down the road. So interesting article to check out. Ted, what would you like to plug? Well, I, I would, I would just invite everybody, you know, there's tons of stories in the news now, one way, shape or form about what's going on in schools. I, I would, I would be really grateful for the first person out there who points to me, and you know, they could get to me through you guys. Uh, anybody that finds a story that says we should be focused on rethinking accountability to ensure our kids are working hard to get good at competencies and mindsets that matter. You, you know, there are plenty of stories about learning loss, or plenty, of, which I think largely for the upper grades is fiction because I don't think they learned it in the first place. There are stories about banning books. There's story. I actually think kids should be exposed to lots of controversial things instead of none. So they get good at fact checking and critical analysis. But I keep waiting for somebody who reports on schools or says this school board had a thoughtful discussion about what changes we need to make to better prepare our kids for a future none of us can predict. I love it. Yeah, I'm ready to read that report too. So listeners, if you're out there and you are hearing this end of the episode, you've made it this far, that's awesome. Share with us that report. You can email us, you can hop on our website, whatever you might like to do. Matt, what you, what you got to plug tonight? Yeah, I'm reading a, a good fiction book, uh, Home Going. It's just a, it's a powerful story of, of, one, of one person. This is a fiction story, but it's a powerful story of of one family's uh, path, and it's uh, you know there's a lot of sad moments in it, but it, it's it's really well written and, and woven together. So I'm enjoying it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I want to plug another podcast, the Have You Heard podcast, with uh, um, with two of my favorite, uh, I guess, education people, um, and their most recent episode, which is number 129, called Friends and Enemies, is really um, fascinating exploration of the micro school movement and how the micro school movement is a product of this conversation around critical race theory and the sort of upending of uh, normal public education, where you know a parent can say, "I'm just going to form up a micro school, grab a bunch of their friends, sit them down in, 
front of a computer and then, you know, um, bring them out of the curriculum that they might experience in a public school and uh, call it a micro school instead of a home school or some other sort of uh, version of the same. So check it out. Um, it is the Have You Heard podcast, episode number 129, Friends and Enemies. And uh, Ted Dintersmith, it's been an absolute joy. Thank you for joining us. Listeners, if you've made it this far, thank you for joining us. And as always, keep rethinking EDU.